Hello and welcome to The Mental Health Shelf. My name is Jamie Skinner and in this podcast I will be inviting guests to bring five items that they believe have brought them joy, escape or generally contributed to good mental health within their lives. These items then get put on, as the title might suggest, The Mental Health Shelf, something to which they can look at when the world might be getting to them, when they might be a bit stressed or simply looking for some form of positive reflection. These items can be absolutely anything they want, tattoo, gun, megaphone, plane ticket, microphone and a microphone just might be something picked by my first guest Dom Chambers. I've been at radio station Summer Valley FM for just over 10 years and Dom was the man who jump-started my time there and very much a lot of what I do now so I see no one better than to start what may be a podcast journey with. I'd say podcast journey very tentatively and uncertainly but still As you'll hear, Dom is a highly involved figure in both the worlds of radio and community media. Filled with references, tales and name drops from his life so far, just a few of these are packed into our conversation as we discuss his love of the arts, community outreach, finding the right atmosphere for conversation and development, and much more. And so I'm going to stop waffling and trying to kind of unconsciously replicate a number of other podcast intros, and let's just get into it, shall we? Here is what Dom Chambers is placing on his mental health shelf. It is wonderful to welcome to the first edition of the Mental Health Shelf podcast. I'm going to go through your LinkedIn here pretty much, so hopefully it's all up to date. The CEO of the Sound Vision Charity, the chair of the Community Media Association, board trustee of the Radio Academy, chair of the Local Radio Alliance, podcast producer for Radio Today, a director and former manager of Summer Valley FM. And even amongst all of that, you still find time to present at Care Radio. Mm. Welcome, Don Chambers. Hello. Well, the truth is I'm frightfully important. You don't, you don't hold yourself in high regard, do you? <laughs> uh, no, that's a fairly, uh, yeah, that's a pretty good resume. Uh, all that stuff's on the surface, though. You know, what, what makes me, what makes careers. And it's all the underneath bit, which is, I guess is where we're going to go with our conversation today. Indeed. When you hear all of that back, though, it is a lot, but there's a kind of consistency of radio and a community angle within it all. Yes, I've always loved radio. Um, because I'm old enough to remember a world before the internet. And radio was the connection to the outside world for many generations. And I didn't watch much television when I was a a child. In fact, I remember when my family got a television. I was also at a boarding school at a young age. And in my view, they sent us to bed a bit early, right? And I was an active kid. Uh, So I, I would go to bed with my radio and listen to Radio Luxembourg and just wonder about the magic of it all. Some of those voices are still on the air, by the way. Within that community angle that I mentioned, though, you and in fact you've just returned from another kind of, I would say, jolly, but kind of jossing around the world and the country, and you don't limit yourself, do you? No, I mean, community has always been important to me. And uh, in fact, one of my choices today is is going to allude to this. So I might save some... Uh, some thoughts back until we we get to that but the idea of combining my love of the radio industry with respect and love and understanding of the importance of community life whether that's a community of interest and like-minded folk or whether that's a community of geographic location it, it's absolutely vital and actually coming here to northeast somerset 15 years ago starting summer valley fm i could bring all these things together and the other thing is I made a decision not to become a teacher. It was always assumed in my family you basically became a teacher or, or went into the army. 
and uh, and I ruled out the latter. And uh, and I and I rather surprised them by not becoming a teacher, going down a kind of broadcasting route. But really, the correlation between the two professions is very very close because it is about holding an audience. A teacher needs to hold a classroom full of students at uh, their attention, and uh, and it's it's the same really for doing radio and holding and engaging with audiences. So when I came here to Summer Valley FM. All these things came under one roof. I could do a bit of teaching, skill development, adore working with young people and creatives, and, uh, and, and then building this in this wonderful community here, which has been redefining itself post-coal mining, post-industrial uh, employers. It all came together so fantastically well. With that in mind, and of course I listed the stuff that, that you're doing only now at the moment, mm. and also with all the stuff you do in various areas is it important to you to have that variety? Oh, immensely, yes. I, I think when I was 15, so quite young, I made a decision that I would lead my life as full as I could and within a sort of an outer comfort zone, if that makes any sense. So there are certain things I wouldn't wish to do or, or risk, but I wanted to live life to the full, and that... As it started to manifest itself, I was hitching to Edinburgh age 16, getting up to London and starting to go around the UK and have conversations. And it was after many years of doing that. It's people, fascination with people, their lives, what makes living in a modern world, you know, tick and, and life here in the UK. I'm history trained, deeply interested in history, and I love seeing the modern in the context of the past, and that could inform where we're going. So I would go around the country when I was young and just have conversations. And one day I had to make career sense of that. And now, as you say, I, I, I do this on, a, on perhaps a global footing. I'm not fantastically wealthy, so I have to make everything justified. But there's nothing I like more than going to a new country and getting beneath the surface, getting into the back country, finding those people for those conversations. I'm not a very good tourist. I'm not that interested in tourism. People is what interests me. Hmm. We'll get on to the kind of contents of your shelf, so to say, your mental health shelf, what you put on there, what brings you escape and joy uh, in a couple of minutes. For now, though, I've known you for, I think, just over a decade now. I don't know how it's that makes longer, you feel. Jamie, actually. But call it a decade, just a bit yeah. over, yeah. So, so I've known you for that time, and... I don't know if I've ever known... Yes, I don't think I've ever known you to exactly air grievances or anything like that. Or I've certainly heard, heard you sort of say things in slight jest or make a slight joke out of them. But have you ever been stressed? I think the answer has to be yes. It's about coping mechanisms and how, how you cope with it. I would, if we'd had this conversation five years ago, I think I'd have been quite tempted to say, no, I don't get stressed, right? <laughs> but I think that is actually a patently ridiculous um, thing because I, I am blessed, in, in my own view, to have robust mental health. Um, and it's something that perhaps the pandemic and the lockdown showed me is, is, is something to respect and nurture and, and not take for granted. And I make much more effort now to do things that satisfy my, my wider kind of intellectual curiosity and spiritual curiosity than I did, you know, a few years ago. It was all about work, work, work. Now, luckily for me, the uh, work and leisure, I hate that word, leisure, um, work and 
downtime. Why do you hate the word leisure? It reminds me of a of a Fry and Laurie sketch about going to a leisure centre on a bank holiday, a hot, sticky August bank holiday, and sort of peeling your children off the back seat, <laughs> you know, because they were so sticky with all the toffee apples. I don't know. I mean, it's just it's it's a word that is. Uh, I suppose it's a bit naff. I have a, I, I do actually quite like naff things, but that's a story perhaps for another occasion. I, I love the variety of life, uh, but 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 sort of still being me. I think I'm recognisable. Not when I look in the mirror, I used to know, but I think I am broadly recognisable to that 16 year old kid who set out to have these uh, extraordinary life adventures. I think really what it was was more of a. I had a journalist approach even from a very young age. And, and, and when life, you don't get actually beyond the age of 16 without carrying baggage, without something going wrong. And it's a question of how uh, you deal with that. And, and my life was not going terribly well about 16, 17 years ago. Uh, I was, this isn't a sob story, by the way, but it does give an insight into how I cope with things. Um, I was homeless, not in a cardboard box underneath Charing Cross Bridge, but I, I, I was sofa serving and I, I had no home, I had no money, I had no job. And, and I was quite robust in how I dealt with this. Well, for instance, one occasion I went to a friend for Sunday lunch and they gave me the offcuts of the meat. And I was able to then the following day walk five miles to a supermarket and work out how best to spend 62 pence in order to make those offcuts work for the whole week. And I bought a carrot, a potato and a bit of gravy, I think. Uh, but even when life was rotten, I was thinking, this is great inspiration. I would write, you know. And uh, I, I, one of my heroes is Oscar Wilde. And Hesketh Pearson, who wrote a biography of Oscar Wilde many, many years ago, and he said that in his view, Wilde had experienced heaven on earth. But as an artist, you should experience hell on earth as well. And perhaps there was an argument Oscar Wilde deliberately put himself through his own downfall and the trials and all the terrible things that happened to him uh, in order to sort of be fulfilled as an artist. Fascinating idea. And I think it's one that's really influenced me. I don't seek out bad things, by the way. But when they do happen, I, I look at them as a reference point. Inevitably, you lose loved ones. I lost my father a few years ago. And I still very, feel very connected uh, to him. And he's actually a, a presence, um, I, I think, in my world and, and probably helping gently steer it in its positive direction. But some of my choices will, will inform that. Hmm. Well, one more thing before we do go on to your choices. In yeah. the time that I've known you, primarily as the manager of Summer Valley FM, although, of course, you're now CEO of Sound Vision, mm. um, I think the more mental health has kind of been a more open thing, the more people have talked about it, I think that's come through a lot more in your work. But even some of the initiatives you ran as manager of the radio station, stuff like Pathway to Employment, for example, I think there were always underlying elements about mental health and looking into... Mm. I, I don't know if you agree. Is totally that something agree. you strived for? Yeah, I mean, one of my jobs is, I think, to observe the trends in the wider world and, and how do we fit into that. But I'm really pleased to see... There's always more work to do, of course, but to see how... We as a society have become more sensitive to individuals' needs, and that has huge implications to empathy and sympathy for uh, mental health issues. Uh, so running a, a, a not-for-profit radio station that has a community interest and then migrating some of that into a charity 
Uh, I absolutely believe that if you can create uh, non-prejudicial, safe spaces where people like you, Jamie, if I can say, many years ago when you were a kid, uh, and a little bit um, discombobulated, can I use that word? I think it's a bit more severe than that. <laughs> All right. I just wanted to do it. I'm on a bet to get the word discombobulated into this podcast. It's a wonderful word. <laughs> it is, to be noted. Um, but if you allow people to explore and grow their creativity, that will uh, add to their list of life skills that everybody needs as they're growing up. Uh, or sometimes we need reminding of because, you know, we've, been made unemployed or whatever and the, and the confidence and all that, that that comes with it so i i have a central belief that everybody has something to offer and sometimes they don't know that i've had many people coming through our doors who don't really know that they are actually got some really positive stuff uh, they're dwelling on the negative and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that I'm, I'm never critical I just try and create an environment, and the people we employ in the staff now, and the wonderful people who are a part of Sound Vision, are very much uh, of the same ethos. Uh, that you create a space for them to grow their own kind of way forward and their own confidence and self belief is what it is. I believe it's within this all, and sometimes we may have to go on a journey that quits the fags or quits the booze or quits the drugs. There are all sorts of stopping points, milestones, I suppose, on that journey. So it's a question of just working out what's the best one for you. I'm not here to work it out for anyone else, but I'm here to, to service an environment for people to grow themselves. Let's start to look at the list. Your, your mental health shelf at the moment is looking a bit empty. There's nothing on it. What's the first item that you think has contributed to good mental health in your life? I love art and I love reading. And I, and I like being informed. So some of my choices are around this. I've, I'm lucky. I have, uh, well, I went to art college myself, so I've got some paintings of my own on the walls, but I pepper them with some rather better offerings from <laughs> other. But I, wasn't, I was great at painting flowers, by the way. And then as I, as I kind of grew up a bit more, I, and I got out into the world and had those conversations, I, I thought, well, you know, a lot of people are good at painting flowers. I, I want more to the, the nitty-gritty of life. So photography, writing became, and then eventually broadcasting and audio uh, became my thing. But let's start um, with a painting. And, I, and so paintings in general. But I'm going to choose one particular painting because it's got a nice little story to it. Uh, my, uh, part of me is American, and one of my American cousins married an American, quite a celebrated painter, who rejoiced under the name of Trafford Partridge Klotz. Right, not going to be dull with a name like that. And he certainly was. He was a wonderfully humorous man, and he died very uh, when I was very young. But I did, I got to know him and um, uh, as a child, and he encouraged my art as well. And uh, my godmother, who was his sister-in-law, uh, who was American, and when she passed away, uh, she left a number of things, and we had to sell her house, and then the estate agents came in. And one of these paintings, I just assume one of her children or someone more kind of closely involved would take it. It's a beautiful painting of a kind of skeleton of a boat uh, on a, a beach in the Gulf of Morbihan, one of my favourite parts of Brittany in France. And uh, there's a, a woman in traditional Breton uh, dress collecting cockles. There's a, a, a man on the side... Uh, scything sedge and it's a beautiful painting and 
the estate agents in this house of my godmother sort of basically nicked it, right? And I was I was really sad because I just thought my godmother would have liked me to have had it. I thought someone else would get it because it's a lovely painting. And unbeknown to me, that painting went into an auction. I say they nicked it, but I mean, I, they, there was probably a cut-off point when they suddenly owned everything in the house and then it went to auction. Um, I think they may have been a bit sharp on it, but let's just leave it at that. This painting went to auction and, uh, and my, unbeknown to me, my mother went and bought it and gave it to me the following Christmas. So it's a wonderful painting to have on my wall. I've got others by him. And uh, and I love France and, um, in fact, the chateau where he lived in, in the summertime with the American artists, where my parents honeymooned. So there's all sorts of reasons why I'm very kind of attached to that part of France. So have, uh, I love the painting, I love the artist, and I love the story, and all these thoughts are with me every time I walk into my kitchen to make a cup of tea. Is this something then, because, partly because of that personal connection, partly because of that early love of art, the way it was encouraged, is it something that... It kind of holds something formative for you within that. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me I'm a crap artist actually. But um, the is there something formative? Um, it's a joy to look at that painting um, because it reminds me of so many of the positives in my life, including a part of France which which I just absolutely adore, and I was lucky enough to to be in it as a child. So there's all sorts of associations, and, and, I, and I just love having it on my wall. It was my first choice for your list today. Is there anything else kind of art-related on your list? Yes. Shall we go into that? Item two. I loved, I, and I have put this in the past, because I'm doing a terrible thing. I'm, I'm not really reading very much anymore, but that's partly because... YouTube and uh, and actually you can use these things for educational you know as well as kind of uh, escapism but um, I used to read a lot and I'm not ruling it out one day and I, I I don't have at home a lounge or a front room or a sitting room I have a library and it is is around to the with lovely shelves I've had built and uh, and I love sitting in there and occasionally I will pull a book down and just read a couple of paragraphs and then put it back up, whether it's, you know, uh, A.J.P. Taylor, favourite historian, um, Oscar Wilde, uh, all sorts of books. But one of my favourite authors I discovered when I was a, a troubled teenager or a troublesome teenager or a mixture of the both uh, was D.H. Um, Lawrence. Now, at the time, see, I was a kid in the 80s, at the time... A lot of teachers and stuff were very taken with D.H. Lawrence, who'd had this massive resurgence of interest because he was basically banned for being a bit rude. And uh, and then there was the famous Penguin trial in the early 1960s, which, which ultimately led to the relaxing of censorship when the state prosecuted Penguin for printing Lady Chatterley's Lover. So, you know, if you read it now, it's rather tame. But at the time, it was sort of pretty revolutionary uh, stuff. And, and, and the, the state lost, by the way, when the state prosecutor uh, appealed to the jury with the following sentiment, is this the sort of book that you'd want your servants to read? Well, that was the... <laughs> and cue the Beatles and the swinging 60s, quite frankly. Uh, the book I love is the one I read and did for A-level at 17. It's The Rainbow uh, by D.H. Lawrence. It has been made into, I think, at least two very unsatisfactory films. Uh, but it is a, a wonderful. It's one of those three generation books, a bit like uh, Lin Chang's uh, Wild Swan, that was uh, big in the nineties. 
Uh, so with the three-generation thing, you've got the old, the now, and the future. And I loved that sort of technique, that narrative technique, because I love, as I was saying earlier, the old, the now, and the future. The future was depicted in the character of Ursula Brangwyn, uh, who went on, I suppose, the character was then developed in Women in Love. But I, I've never really dared read Women in Love because I, I wanted to leave her as this young woman on the threshold of all her hopes and dreams. And I, I sort of wanted to leave her like that. In there was a quote which really appealed to me, age 17. She, she must go somewhere. She must become something. And that absolutely was, was my sense of uh, mission when I was 17, when I first read it. And incidentally, it did trigger a, a, some vague intellectual capacity in me. I was always bottom of the class. I was always top of history, but I was pretty well bottom of it. When I did an A-level essay on the rainbow, my teacher looked at me, and I reminded her of this. She actually baked me a cake. I was up in Yorkshire, and she baked me a cake. Lovely. Lovely to see her. A really a wonderful person. And when she handed me back this essay, she gave me an A or something. She said, when I read this, I wondered where I'd gone wrong with everything else. And I'd just say, oh, I wouldn't worry about it. I'm just a bit lazy and only just getting going now. And uh, which is true. But the, yeah, that, that book, The Rainbow, is, is on my shelf in your podcast. Was it one of the first books to kind of properly strike you at a particular point? I think it, it's, it's not a particularly easy book to read. So it's a, quite an achievement. I mean, C.S. Lewis and the Narnia stories are the first time as a sort of near grown up. I really enjoyed literature and the fantasy and a wonderful writing of those, you know, Lion, Witch and a Wardrobe and all that. But I suppose reading The Rainbow was, yes, it was probably the first time I related to a novel and it said something to me. And I've always wanted to live my life as an artist. And so I suppose it appealed on that front. And I think when it comes to books, a lot of people, will, of course, cite fantasy or sci-fi because those are the big kind of escapist genres. Stuff like you know, I love Philip K. Dick. I, th- I think mm. he's possibly my favourite writer. You know, very strange, trippy, what is reality kind of stuff. And yeah, I think the first book that I properly, at a kind of formative age, properly got into was The Curious Instant of the Dog in the Nighttime because I think of that autistic angle where I thought, okay this I can understand properly and kind of connect with because I have those similarities to the character. Mm. And while we can enjoy certain things and, you know, certainly very much appreciate them, I think it's when we obviously, and this is the same with films and art as well, all that kind of stuff, properly find ourselves in them, that's when we can have that big push. Yeah, and absolutely. And one of the things I think Lawrence was doing was challenging the mores of the day. So the character, Ursula, who was attracted to women as well as men. Well, that seemed rather risque in a monastic boarding school, I can tell you. But that really appealed to me because, uh, you know, we should all be allowed to develop who we want to be and who we need to be uh, within the law, of course, and as long as you're not uh, uh, upsetting anyone else or interfering with with their own journeys. And I'm very pleased to see how society has has kind of adopted this approach that uh, you should... Uh, and, and you almost have a kind of obligation, I think, to be self-fulfilled if you can and to, and to find happiness that way. And I, I think I always inherently had that. But reading about this in, in Lawrence's work, absolutely, is what you're saying. Total resonance and appeal. Is it something that, Have you revisited it since or is it something that you've kind of leaned away from because you just like the idea of that memory in your mind? I've often thought of rereading it um 
perhaps I've ticked that box, though, and maybe there's other works of art to explore and enjoy. Um, and I have given it to, in my kind of capacity as a godparent, or even some of the people I've met through uh, the work here at Summer Valley FM and, and Sound Vision, uh, particularly ones who, who I meet young and then they become part of everything. Uh, and so sometimes they say, well, this really appealed to me uh, and it might appeal to you. And I've no idea if it does or it doesn't, but it, I think they, they understand that as a, a really nice gesture, a nice gift because it's thought about. And I hope that they have the same level of self-fulfillment and happiness that I've been lucky enough to have, um, which started with sort of engaging in, in books like that and, and, of course, music and other art forms as well. It's almost like a slight, not quite passing on of the baton, but it's almost a little bit like that with a, a sort of guidance. I mean, aside from a cake, which you mentioned, did anyone ever give you anything like that? Well, I, funny enough, uh, that was a brilliant segue because it, it could take us on to my next item. Let, let's go to it. Uh, so this is a slightly unusual choice for someone who's, who's not religious. Uh, and I've had plenty of opportunities, by the way, to be religious because I, I was educated by monks. I come from a very... Uh, Catholic family. My father had tried his luck being a monk, and my mother had tried her luck being a nun. So really, it was coming from all directions. Before the age of uh, eighteen, I'd met both the uh, a pope and and the Dalai Lama. So um, it was uh, a lot coming to me. And and I think out of all that, I I I would regard myself as spiritual. I don't think I'm not a sort of rationalist or a scientist in the sense of I think you know what we see and what we know about the world is the entirety of it. I do think there's other forces at play, whether you want to enshrine that in a religion or in nature or in some sort of um, consciousness of the universe. I'm very uh, open-minded about this. But anyway, when I was eight, in the tradition of the Catholic Church, I prepared for and made my first Holy Communion. And uh, the priest who did that went on to become quite a significant person because he actually became my head teacher eventually. And he gave me a little present uh, when I was eight. And it was a leather pouch uh, with a, a, a small crucifix in. And it, uh, for some reason, you know, I've lost loads of stuff over the years, but for some reason that it stays with me. And I went to the place of the crucifixion where Christ allegedly, well, it was no allegedly about him being crucified, but this was the spot, Golgotha. It's known as, and they built a big, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, around it, and uh, and and it's a very dramatic place. And again, you you know, you don't have to be a person of faith in in the Christian traditions to get a huge amount out of being there. And as you walk in, the worshippers, the pilgrims, the tourists, whoever they are, are confronted by a big slab, which is allegedly where uh, Jesus was prepared for the tomb after the crucifixion. And uh, most people flop to their knees, and often with a little trinket, and they put that trinket uh, on it. Now, whether they're hoping the trinket to be dramatically turned into gold or not, I don't know. But anyway, when I did, I, I knelt down there, and, and I put this little leather pouch of the cross in, uh, on the thing, and I kept it around with me for a long time, and it now sits on the side, so it's never very far from me. Again, it's, an, it's a happy little reminder that I've been lucky, life's gone okay, and I love the I love the link between the person I am now in my fifties and thinking of that little boy, uh, aged eight, starting out, uh, and actually in the end, 
rejecting the Catholic Church, but sort of absorbing the good bits, you know? <laughs> and those are the, the essential guides to, to good and civilised behaviour, which frankly permeates all uh, legitimate and known faiths. So... I think you know. I'll I'll have the good bits, thank you. But you know, I'm not going to get down to benediction and smell that incense too often. On the point of the thinking about where you've come from, is that something that you often find yourself thinking about? Um, yeah, I once wrote a story that, um, and this what, what triggered this was when I was 18. Uh, I, I mean, I come from a, a, an era where people went to the pub and would just talk to any generation. The idea of kind of only going with your own type or your own age group. Well, I guess that happened then. But a, but a village pub, for instance, had everyone in. You know, and if the youngsters got a bit out of hand, the, the old ones would point it out and everyone would, would be happy. And I was in the garden with some friends of mine who were kind of 18, 90, 20 at the most. And there was a much older man here. It turned out that one of my f- young female friends was having... Uh, an affair with him, but he struck me as being a bit of a tragic character. I, th- I think he was a user of drugs, and so he seemed quite a nice guy, but he also seemed very disconnected. And, and I looked at him, and I just thought, I wonder if that's me in well, whatever it is, 30 years' time. And then I took that idea of having a conversation with yourself at the two ends of your life, uh, as it is at that moment. And it's that idea of, have I let myself down? Have I fulfilled all that? Huge influence for me, and this could easily be something on the shelf, frankly, is, is the Pink Floyd album, The Final Cut, one they did after the wall. And on there, there's a song about uh, the, the pie in the sky turning out to be miles too high and just absolutely not living up to your dreams and, and then using alcohol, I think. And I, I absolutely, and they say religiously, but I used to uh, listen to that a lot. When I was 18, I went, whatever happens in life, it will not be that. And, and do you know what? Now I look back and I think I've got a lot of work to do and I've got a lot more to, of me to come. But I am basically a, a, a self-fulfilled and, and happy person. You are a man who is filled with references to all kinds of it. We've had, you know, discussions about, you know, comedy sketches or stand-up routines. You've mentioned literature, paintings, artwork, radio, all this kind of stuff. And the way it crops up in your life and how you reflect on certain things through these references or analogies. Do, have you kind of based your life around it, felt inspired by it, or is it something that just kind of comes through when you recall events? I, I love those kind of cultural references. And I love embedding myself in them. You know, I don't watch this stuff just on telly, you know, as escapism. And I've just been finishing a book, uh, which is called Sound Vision, and uh, it's about how the charity came about. It's got autobiographical in parts, because I kind of felt a need to help people going way back into my early childhood. But there's a story in there that I've taken from another person's career and been informed by it. Les Dawson now probably quite a forgotten comedian because he died in 1993 and he died tragically far too young. An absolute genius. Uh, Ken Dodd said that there were three areas of comedy with the droll, the clown and the wordsmith and the only comedian he could think of who <laughs> was all three was uh, Les Dawson. And, um, but he was struggling to get his career going. So he was, uh, and he was married and of course had a child and all the responsibilities that, that comes with that. Uh, so he was in the working men's clubs as they would have been in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, pretty unpromising places, but if you can make them work, you probably had a good career because so many careers came out of that culture. 
and uh, you know, with the with the young child and the family, uh, he set himself a cut off date that if he hadn't got his big break in comedy and television and so forth, then he was going to become a better second hand vacuum salesman. And, and then the story goes that he he went to the audition at uh, Opportunity Knocks with Huey Green. And Huey Green, at the end of his audition, said, one thing I can tell you, Mr. Dawson, is you will not be selling second-hand vacuums again. And I, and I did that, you know, at that period of my life where I didn't have a network and I wasn't getting the work I knew I could do. And I didn't really know how to find my way forward. And then what I did was I set a date in the calendar. And if I hadn't got to where I want or be on the pathway then I was going to retrain and become a probation officer, which had always sort of interested me. In fact, prison and, and rehabilitation interests me, and I'm able to sort of do a bit in, that, in my work now. And then I got the opportunity here, and that, that led to so many other things. So I rang the probation service and said I wouldn't be coming, and life got better, as it did for Les Dawson. Uh, yeah, these cultural references are definitely inspirational. And if I'm thinking of falling asleep at the driving wheel, yeah, pull over, get a coffee inside you, absolutely. <laughs> but before that, just to get me to the nearest service station, I, I, in the old days when it used to have cassettes, uh, well, now I suppose there's a button on my, on my phone, but I just put on Billy Connolly Live. You cannot fall asleep with Billy Connolly Live too. Two Glaswegians in Rome. I've heard that story um, a thousand times, and I'll laugh. Just like when a bus blows up on the Only Fools and Horses uh, Jolly Boys outing, you know it's coming, and uh, I'm always on the floor when it happens. I hear most people, for, for Only Fools at least, referring to the chandelier, referring mm. to uh, Dell falling through the bar, but for you it's the bus blowing They're up. Always. I mean, I love all those <laughs> other things as well. The, the bus blowing up, is, I think the first time I saw it was so unexpected. And, uh, and and Rodney, who had a very kind of deadpan voice, and he goes, he's talking to Cassandra, and said, yes, and then we did this, and then we did that, and, oh, the bus has blown up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge sort of ballistic explosion. Uh, before we move on, and uh, this may be expanding on something that you said, but it's also something that I was just generally hoping would come up. When you were searching for your career, and, and you've said this a couple of times, although correct me if I'm wrong on the general basis of it, and you said you, throughout school, throughout college, all that kind of stuff, you didn't overly know where you wanted to go, and you almost kind of slightly stumbled into radio. Well, I think I, I certainly went through the whole of school and university without knowing what I wanted to do. I wasn't a man in a hurry. Hmm. Didn't realise you had to be. I think you had to be more a bit these days. You've got to have a bit more edge because there's a very kind of competitive world out there. Uh, but, you know, I, I just sort of felt if I lived life to the full, somehow it would all make sense. In fact, there was a very specific moment when I wanted to work in radio. Uh, my good friend Bill Coles, uh, who at that time was just starting out on, on what turned out to be a substantial career in journalism, rising right to the top of the sun. Um, and he, I was thinking of journalism when I got my degree. And I went um, to the pub to meet him. He bought, I think, his girlfriend or a friend along at the time. And she was a BBC producer. And about 30 seconds into the pint conversation, uh, I was talking to her. And I realised that's exactly what I, I, I could do. I love talking. I love listening. You know, it's, it, radio's about listening as well as talking. Being a good talker is really about being a good listener. And, uh, and I knew I could do all that. So it made absolute sense. And I loved my music, you know. I was a, a rocker, really. And uh, I had a, 
big record collection. I was DJing by then. So it all made perfect sense. But yeah, and once once I decided that's what I wanted to do, uh, then by hook or by crook, I stuck with it. It wasn't an easy pathway, easy. I, I, either I wouldn't recommend this uh, to anybody, frankly. Mm. <laughs> We've delved into the arts for your shelf. We've had a bit of spirituality. What's next? What's your fourth item? Am I allowed to take and put onto the shelf a 1980s pub? We can put a model of a pub. Okay. Well, I'd like the model to be the King's Head, uh, which lurks there. I suspect it's a rather sort of posh eatery now, but for many years it was one of the great rock venues of London. And it's uh, on the meeting point of the Fulham Palace Road, the Fulham High Street and the Fulham Road. And uh, for many years in the late 80s, and yeah, really from sort of 1985 to 1990, I lived in Fulham. Uh, I loved it. Loved the North End Road, the market, and there was real personality. Before house prices stipulated that the only people allowed into the territory were people with Chelsea tractors parked outside of multi-million pound residences. And the King's Head was, was an awesome pub. It had two doors, so the public bar on the left and then the music venue on the right. And... And to kind of typify or the reason why I like this is because rock and roll's a great leveller. Pubs should be, but they're not always. Uh, there was perhaps more violence in pubs then than there is now. I think the violence tends to disappear down the back alleys a bit more these days, but in those days it was more acceptable, I think, just to have a fisticuffs in a pub. And um, and I was uh, on the... I'll we'll go through the right side uh, to go and see something like the John Coglin Diesel Band or the Jackie Linton Band. And a bloke would stand there collecting three pounds... Uh, to get in and always nod your hellos and go to the bar, wait your turn for a, a bottle of Nuki Brown or a light and bitter or something. And uh, and then through the other side of the bar, they had a window into the other bar. And I remember looking over there and I'm saying, hello, mate, all right, yeah, I'll see you up at Donny and all this sort of stuff. And then you can look through to the other bar and there were snooker cues and teeth flying and all sorts of stuff. And I thought, this is the better place to be. This is, uh, you know, for the rock and roll. And... And I used to think, because people look a bit kind of uh, uh, heavy, sort of Hells Angels types, who went to heavy rock concerts, were, were inherently violent. Of course, that was a rubbish idea. And, um, and possibly playing to the media a little bit there as well. And uh, when I started going to gigs, it was always a wonderful feeling of fraternity, of oneness, that lovely connection between somebody enjoying, you know, and, and connecting with what's happening on stage. I still go to live events now. I tend not to do big stadiums because I feel I've done that. But, you know, I love the band James, for instance, uh, the Mancunian band James, very kind of mindful music. And it's sort of where I'm at at the moment, but it, it is it is spiritual. Anyway, back to uh, continuing that James weren't playing in the King's Head in Fulham in the late 1980s. Um, really, really happy memories of top nights. And you know what? One of the guys there, Jackie Linton, who never quite made it, uh, it, but he was a crooner in the 60s and then he was an associate of status quo, still is. And he's been a session musician. He's done some stuff. He's a wonderful guy, a very rude and filthy man. And, and as much a comedian as anything else, but, but well-respected in the sort of uh, rock and blues world of pub culture in London. And just before the pandemic, of course, didn't know what was about to happen in society. I did the best thing because it just wouldn't happen now, I don't think. I contacted him and I said, can I come and talk to you with a microphone? And he went, yes, of course. And I sat there for about two hours and he told me the stories and we shared the conversations. 
He said, I remember you. You used to be tall and very good looking. He goes, what happened? <laughs> and it was lovely sitting there. And I've got all that for posterity. One day I'll, I'll get that edited and, and released when it's uh, appropriate to do so. But happy memories of a good time. And not just that pub. Pubs were amazing places. Uh, and I, I, they probably still are. I mean, I, I gave up booze and, you know, uh, well, at least I don't really drink very much. And uh, I don't have the need to go to them. But the community value... The fraternity, the friendships, the, the, the you know, some great, great evenings. And I've always regarded the pub as the centre of community life, really. Throughout that entire answer, and I loved that answer because that was the point when you truly became passionate. You know, you back straight, straight into the microphone, eyes had that glint in them, gesticulate. <laughs> We're in the studio together, gesticulating yeah. wildly almost. You can tell the passion that you have for it. Also, the fond memories. That was a, just a smashing tale yeah. of stories. And I think you said then, you know, the pub has been kind of very useful to you. Just a place to sit down, have a conversation over a drink. And, you know, I don't drink as well, but it came up on a little memories thing on social media the other day. About three or four years ago, I think. It was me, you and Richard Harris, who's recently left the radio station to pursue other things. We sat down uh, after a meeting just in a pub, got some snacks, got some mm. drinks, and I remember just being a wonderful evening of just sitting there and talking about the station, just about life, yeah. and all the things that can kind of come when you just slightly, you know, tune out of, quote-unquote, the world and just tune into another one of just, you know, more personal conversation. And I don't know if this is going to lead somewhere, this ramble, mm. Just before Christmas, um, Rob pick up another presenter here. He was doing his Christmas show, a special uh, Christmas show, and he had colleagues from work and all that, and I kind of sat there because I was meant to record Christmas Day. It didn't happen. And afterwards, he went, do you just want to come down to Weatherspoons with us and we're just going to get some food went, if it's all right? And this went, yeah, yeah. And my mind is usually, you know, a little bit loud or something or it'll be having a little go at me or saying, oh, you know, you're talking too much or rambling like now. All that kind of stuff. And it was the one evening, and I don't know what it was about it, where it was quiet and calm, and I don't know whether it was just because I was absorbed in that conversation or mm. not. Do, is it just something about the pub atmosphere? I think it's about the spirit that you put into that. Mm. It's a bit like I, what I was saying earlier about providing an environment and, and then you know hopefully people finding their own way forward uh, because it's a safe and happy space. Um, I mean, I you know, in the old days, I used to go in the pubs. First thing I'd do is check out the exits because uh, I'm not a violent person and I'm not interested in getting too involved with violence. The only time I ever have been is in defence of somebody else who was more vulnerable than I was. What I've always said, really, is for me, a great evening is in a quiet village pub in conversation or front row for Motorhead, <laughs> where, you're, where, where you're not really planning on, on the quality of the conversation. Maybe I have one afterwards. But I don't really like noisy places, uh, unless you're there for the noise. So uh, I'm not saying no music or no other people in there. Not, I don't need a still atmosphere. But I do find, the older I get, the more my ears are a bit selective. And so I can struggle to hear a conversation in a very loud mm. environment. So, yeah, quiet uh, pub... And um, and and in pubs, my father-in-law used to say, oh, I don't go to pubs, I you know, I don't, I don't really like drinking beer. Well, that's a, quite an old-fashioned view, uh, which he's allowed to have because he's well into his 80s, by the way. But um, 
I think it, it's it's about you know the spirit. You in in Midsummer and Autumn where we're having this conversation. There used to be the Wonder Bar, and I love that place. It was again, it was multi generational. You could just sit at the bar and just chat to all sorts uh, from people starting out in life to for people reflecting back with their stories. Uh, so, and I still do that. There's nothing I enjoy more than a really good chat over some food and some drink. Doesn't have to be alcoholic drink. It's just it's about the company. Mm. We move on. Your final item that you're going to put on your shelf. Well, I was going to um, put a microphone on the shelf because the microphone has been my tool uh, of uh, my 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 weapon, if you like, and so many things have passed through it, but. You know what? I, I'm, I, I touched on this earlier, and I, I think actually that final selection, given the fact that my mic's always going to be with me anyway, doesn't need to sit on a shelf, is uh, maybe the Pink Floyd album uh, I was talking about, uh, and The Wall as well. You know, I thought when I was about 12 when The Wall came out, and I thought it was the, um, the, the sort of messianic answers to the meaning of life turned out to be the slightly, uh, well, very deranged meanderings of a very creative, messed-up individual that is Roger Waters. Uh, but it said a lot to me. I love that whole thing about, you know, using music as a point of reflection. You can look up to the music, you know, when you're young. Ken Bruce had this absolutely right. It's the tracks of your lives. You know, and I'll, I'll put stuff on YouTube or on Spotify that, and immediately, it's like a smell. It'll take you straight back to somewhere. And uh, and hopefully, with happy associations. So with thoughts that I have awarded myself uh, my next big birthday present, uh, and I will be front row in Paris with good friends, with Roger Waters on his last tour, belting out all that stuff that's meant so much to me. So maybe the last thing I'm going to put onto the shelf is Pink Floyd. The, the entire band of Pink Floyd? Yeah, why not? Wonderful. So what? just little models and figurines as well, yeah. I guess. Yeah, love them. I mean, I love all sorts of music. I don't know why I particularly chosen them, but it just came up in the conversation, and I like the idea. And, and I like the idea that I was influenced and in listening to this stuff way back when I was a kid, and here I am in my 50s, heading to Paris in May, uh, to go and see uh, this in the round. It's going to be Roger Waters does not do small stuff. I've seen him four times. It's always a massive gig, and they don't make them like that anymore. And so, uh, yeah, my last choice. It strikes me that it's another thing to do with creativity and that kind of um, area. Because I know we've also talked at length about Bowie, particularly station mm. to station into low, oh, that yeah, kind yeah, of period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I'm so lucky to, to have seen him. Mm. And it's, you know, it's the passing of people like Bowie that make you realise that when Roger Waters is, is doing a tour... You know, get out there because these things won't last. I mean, to 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 have enjoyed this stuff in the eighties, or if you're older than me, you would have enjoying it in the sixties and seventies, and to find that there's still this stuff out there on that scale. I mean, get down to it because it ain't going to last for long. I was so sad to hear of the passing of Maxi Jazz from Faithless. I've had so many happy times. I went to see Faithless when there was only 200 other people in the room when Insomnia was in the charts. I've seen them command uh, crowds of 70,000 at Glastonbury. And what a wonderful uh, band uh, they were. And the thought of that not happening anymore fills me with with great sadness. So you've got that little memento of kind of creativity and also just the music that you've enjoyed through the figures of Pink Floyd appearing on your shelf. Yeah. Yeah, I love the idea of having Pink Floyd on your shelf. 
Wonderful. That's a great idea. Sitting in the 80s pub. Let's have a quick look back at your shelf. What are the items that you've put on it? So I think we've got a painting uh, by Trafford Partridge Klotz, because I don't think you can say that name often enough here on uh, on the radio or on a podcast. I've got D.H. Lawrence's novel The Rainbow. I've got the King's Head pub from the 1980s. Uh, I've got my little cross in a pouch, and I've got Pink Floyd. What goes through your mind when you hear all that back, particularly you saying it yourself? Well, it, that was a, a list I, I would never have sort of... It's organically grown in this conversation. I like that. And it, just as I look back on my life and also where it is now and where it's going, there is always the dressing of humour. There's always the dressing of uh, creative... Well, it's powered by creativity, really. And uh, so if I think of that le- list... And, and also the, the, the kind of unexpected and surreal depiction of these things actually being on a shelf... I think is rather delicious. That's a wonderful term to use, delicious, at the end of that. <laughs> really kind of sinking your teeth into it with the you know the way you've been talking about it. Excellent, yeah. Thank you very much for joining me on this, uh, Dom. Wonderful to talk to you. Shall we venture down the pub to continue this? You have many stories, I know. I think yeah, more items to be sampled uh, under the heading of delicious is uh, <laughs> required. Uh, thank you very much for having me as your first guest on very this. Welcome. And I want to wish you all the luck with this podcast. It's a great idea. Thank you. And there we have it. I don't quite think either of us expected to go from the idea of paintings depicting scenes of France and Brittany to Pink Floyd in a 1980s Fulham pub, but still, it's something that very much sums up Dom, his career, and of course, very much his shelf. And he seemed very happy with it indeed. And I genuinely mean this. As I said in the conversation, I've known Dom for over a decade now, and there are stories, details, references, all that kind of stuff that came up during the conversation that I'd never heard him mention. He is a fascinating person, a life truly lived so far. And as I say, he is just filled with all this kind of stuff and knowledge and experiences, well worth spending an evening over some food and drink, discussing and unfurling and just bouncing back and forth. A fascinating person indeed. If you want to find more from Dom, he's on various social media platforms. He's on Twitter as at the Dom Chambers, and you can follow his radio ventures in various different places. His in-radio podcast is available to listen to now. He hosts a show called Life Stories on Care Radio, which for some reason I featured on quite strangely, but still. And if you want to see more of him delving into the world of radio and with various interviews, you can find his Dom's Diary series on YouTube. His channel is simply his name, Dom chambers but another huge thanks to him for joining me on this first episode of the mental health shelf thank you very much for listening yourself if you've made it to this point i'll just say the cliche thing of well done and thank you for listening it's hugely appreciated as i say thank you very much for listening i'll be back next time with another shelf and another guest until then please stay safe and goodbye for now